changing careers can be difficult. Today on Workit, Nix is going to explain the challenges of switching her career from pharmacist to project manager. I'm Francesco. And I'm Nalan. And this is Workit. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining us once again. Uh, today we have on Nix, who's an educator, consultant in the healthcare industry, and former pharmacist. How are you? And thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I had quite a rough week, um, but I'm really happy to be here. So I've got a lot of experiences to share. Feel free to ask me anything. Oh, we will. We will. Don't worry. <laughs> Maybe let's start with you telling us a little bit more about what do you do. Okay, um, so more about myself. I am a registered pharmacist in Singapore, so that means I'm a legal drug dealer. Um, <laughs> on top and above that, um, I'm currently doing some project management that involves our public hospitals. So for me, my background is in public hospitals itself. Um, I used to work for this place called Tan Tok Sing, which is our national infectious disease hospital. Um, and it's a really cool place. It's kind of squarish. You kind of know that the barricades could come down anytime and you'll be trapped inside just dealing with infectious diseases. And we all knew the risk. Um, but it was, it was particularly interesting because up until then, my style of management was a bit more free form and just being exposed to going to the hospital is just enlightening because you see all these processes. You learn that maybe healthcare kind of works like a military. There's a lot of processes in place. And so I develop an appreciation for this. And that's what I carry over into my job these days with project management. So how did you get into the project management role? Did you start first being a pharmacist within the hospital itself and running, let's say, the the drug dealership, like you called it, for the <laughs> hospital? And then eventually you ended up as a project manager. How did it happen? Well, I kind of didn't expect it. So... I had worked in the hospital and my specialties were workplace improvement. So what that means is every time people see some sort of an inefficiency in terms of the workflow, like for example, you don't need to stand and wait for five minutes. Um, someone else can take over the task. You can just use like a post-it board of sorts and people will just take the tasks off. Um, so I used to be in charge of that where I'd have to review all these suggestions that are coming in for people and it would be like, okay, why don't instead of a post-it board, we do like a online memo. What about instead of an online memo, we have like a little basket that's put in front of a person who can pick up these notes. So it's a lot about reviewing the processes and what makes sense in the space of our drug dealership there. Um, and so when I came out, I actually was involved in health education. So it means to teach people about really complex health topics. How do we boil it down? And somehow or another, I ended up in the management of this company. And um, now I'm dealing with all sorts of external products that have to deal with how do we educate people better and how do we change certain workflows within the public hospitals so that we can marry the two together. So it's, it's a pretty complex, I would say, role. I didn't plan for it. I just kind of got parachuted into it. One thing led to another, and so here I am. Got it. And one question related to that, do you feel like you need to understand really the way that 
the supply, for example, of the medicine works? Or is it something that it's so unrelated, the project management role, that you don't really need to understand or it's not really specific to the drug, to the drugs realm, let's say? That's a really good question. I'd say that a lot of the technical knowledge that I was trained in, the drug names, the suppliers, um, the, the know-how, I don't really carry over into my new job, but a lot of the skills are transferable. So being able to speak to people, to empathize, to relate to what's going on in the hospital, I feel like the experience working in the hospital has um, enriched me, right? So when my clinicians tell me that, hey, sorry, um, these COVID things and work process related things have affected our project, I am a lot more empathetic than my colleagues when it comes to it because I've been there, I understand it. And I feel like that's a very huge part of project management, being able to empathize and being able to be flexible enough to work around these situations to create a solution. Um, so I guess a lot of the soft skills that I learned is transferable into my new role. How did you feel about it when you switched to such a role where you kind of had to put away all the all the hard skills, let's call it that way, that you learned in university? Okay, maybe I could give you a little bit of a breakdown of uh, what my yeah, former so. job was and what I currently do. Would that help? Sure, it would. Okay, great. So I am from the National University of Singapore and I started pharmacy there. I would say that a healthcare education did not serve me well. I plunged myself into an apprenticeship in a hospital and I was completely lost. All the years of studying, all the stuff I was supposed to memorize, which I didn't, wasn't the best student and so I don't remember them. A lot of my career in medicine came from just googling Control F was my best friend. So I just went on Google and I would search guidelines to treat diabetes, stroke, what have you. And I would just control find like what is the medicine, how many milligrams do I need, how many times a day, and that's how I survived. And eventually it just kind of becomes a habit and you remember like, okay, maybe I'm supposed to take metformin at 500 mgs three times a day and you would remember sort of the cutoff points. Um, and that's how you become a walking encyclopedia just by practice day in, day out. You start to memorize the drug names, the dosages, how many times a day, what's the maximum, what do I need to check for? And all these are really technical and depend on the sort of data that you have in front of you. And so I was a manual data cruncher. Every day I'd go into the hospital and I'd look, okay, patient X, this is his kidney function, this is his um, current condition, this is what the doctor wants to treat, is it okay? And so I was kind of manually processing all these data and trying to understand, you know, is this suitable? And then at the end of the day, I would either say yes, it's okay, and I dispense the drug, I give it to the patient, or no, and then I call the doctor. So that, that was the primary role of sorts. Um, so yes, I'm the person that you see that tells you, okay, here's your Panadol. Take it like four times a day and no more than that. Yeah. So All your problems will to... go away. <laughs> so we, we kind of just have to memorize all these things, right? And um, kind of communicate to a patient that, yeah, taking this will make your stomach hurt less, will cure your hangover, will help you with this and that. But here's the side effects. And so I really saw my role as 
an educator first and foremost. And in my spare time, when they did allow me time off from the counter, I would be doing these things like workflow processes. Like how do I improve it? How do I look at bigger data so that I possibly know what to order and what not to order? Um, and this of course came on top of all your duties, which were already quite staggering and very overwhelming. And so I decided to make that shift, right? Because if I wanted to focus on getting better processes, getting better technology, I couldn't quite be at the counter in the same way. I can't right. just be dispensing all the time. Um, and so that's why I left first and foremost to do education because I felt that if there was a possibility that I could prevent you from being at my counter in the first place, like don't even show <laughs> up. Because <laughs> the moment you show up, I'll be seeing you every three months. That's not what I want. Just be gone, right? The less so, I see you, the better, of course. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a complex relationship, right? You never want to see the same person again. But it's always good when you they show up because then you can clarify any kind of a concern they might have. Um, and so that's where all the technical knowledge lies. So when I moved over to education, it was kind of a different problem where you had to learn how to distill knowledge down. How do I make this easier? How do I make this digestible? How do I make drugs feel less intimidating for you um, and your body systems more understandable, relatable, so that you would do the things that I want you to do. Um, so there's some sort of a synergy there when it comes to my old role and my current role. It's just that my current role now has a layer added onto it because now I'm no longer just dealing with you as my patient who needs to take Panadol, but I need to deal with the management behind me who is going like, hey, you know, what's the risk here? What else do you have to consider? What are the implications of using a technology in such a data tight environment? Right. So that's my new challenges, which has nothing to do with my technical knowledge, but has everything to do with how my technical knowledge and my understanding of this space would affect the end product. I have a question, I think, related to your previous role in pharmacy, and I guess maybe you can segue it into how you apply your technical knowledge and the soft skills into your current sure. role. So I think most people, when you tell them pharmacist, they think of the person at the counter giving them their drugs, right? Yeah. But you know, you went to school for like several years, pretty in-depth education. So just I think for the listener's background, what exactly does a pharmacy do besides handing you drugs over a counter? Wow. They don't want to see you from what I understood so far. <laughs> what do people what do the people not see, you know? Wow. Okay. Um That's a really loaded question. I think I'll just ramble on a little bit in this front portion. You can okay. decide whether you wanna remove it. Um Go for a rant to do whatever you need to do. <laughs> okay, so the the common joke joke in inverted commas that runs through the entire pharmacy school is that we are all medical school dropouts so the way this works in singapore is that we have a bachelor system so in some countries to be a doctor you have to do a post-grad sort of a studies but mm -hmm. in singapore you can do it as a graduate um sorry not as a graduate but as a undergraduate yes right? as an undergraduate thing right yeah. um so the running joke is that if you are a pharmacist about an 80% chance was that you applied to a medical school in Singapore, you applied to dentistry in Singapore, you couldn't get in, and therefore you end up in pharmacy. 
so to me it was kind of true right because every time so we have this orientation kind of a spirit in singapore when we do this big group gatherings right before university starts and as it progresses and every time you'd ask the person next to you or like the left of you and you're just like hey why are you here they'd be like i didn't make it to med school right which i feel is a very asian answer because it's pretty much driven into you that you should try and be a doctor failing which maybe consider pharmacy so i do feel like pharmacy in singapore stays in this very strange space where we are inferior to medical students but we are also very different so i think that there is a lot of value in deconstructing what pharmacy means in singapore so thank you nalan for asking so in terms of what i do from a day-to-day -day as a pharmacist and how this is different I would say that if you want to look in the spectrum of medicine, right? When you see a doctor, they will first diagnose and then they'll prescribe, right? But what most people don't really see in the background is that when a doctor hands you a prescription and tells you, hey, I think you need this, there is someone on the other side, i.e. your pharmacist, who has to look through this prescription and go like, hey, is this right? So for example, what I mean by this is if your doctor is somewhat out of practice and you tell him, I've got a stomach ache, he says, here, have a Panadol. And you go, or I go as a pharmacist, I would go, okay, you know, a Panadol is not the best solution for a stomach ache. Here are the list of other drugs that you may consider. Right. So I form that kind of an auditor role where I look at it. I look at the diagnosis. I look at a patient complaint. I look at a prescription and I go, you know, does this make sense? And if it doesn't, then I'd have to make a um, what we call an intervention. But it just basically means call your doctor to check. So that's one role that I do. The second role that I do is sort of a safety role. Right. So when I'm checking these drugs i'm not just looking for the brand name or the type of drugs but i'm looking at the dose as well does it make sense is this overdose is this an underdose all of which have implications to your health condition itself so i am looking for that as well and i'm also looking at the type of drug name that you provide so panadol as we all know is a drug name it's a brand name of a drug right brand it's a brand name, right? name of a drug um, but the name of the drug would be acetaminophen or paracetamol depends on where you're from on this world right so i will be looking for the accuracy of that like does it match up does he mean this branded drug and this branded drug only right and this has a lot of implications when it comes to a lot of the mental drugs all the psychiatric drugs sometimes they feel like one brand works better than another sometimes a patient is more used to one and another and my job is to make sure that as a pharmacy i'm supplying the right material What's the difference between the mental drugs? Like, why would a specific brand be different than the other one if the composition is the same? Great question. Um, so this is also covered in pharmacy school. Great awesome. question. We're gonna we're awesome. gonna go through everything you learned in in school, <laughs> and then we'll see. I need there. to learn how to summarize this better. <laughs> so maybe I could ask you. So what happens when you eat a eat a food? Say you ate McDonald's today. What's the process of it getting into your body? Of getting it into my body. Well, yeah. I, how do you I how do you absorb the fry. it? Oh right. Well, <laughs> uh, I absorb everything that is nutritional about it, and then everything else gets expelled in different means. Let's put it this way. <laughs> yeah, uh, pretty much. So if we want to break it down, so it's kind of like I eat a fry, and the fry meets my stomach, 
but maybe the fries doesn't quite digest as well in my stomach as it would in the intestines and so it will travel along the the elementary tract or the digestive tract and it will end up somehow in my body so my next question is where will this fry end up so like is it gonna end up in the toilet is it gonna end up in my muscles is it gonna end up you know in my beer belly like where is it going mm right? So these are things that a pharmacist would have to take note of. So we'd have to know if, for example, a drug is digested in the stomach, it is absorbed by the body there, and then ends up maybe in the muscles. Or for example, a drug digests itself inside the intestines, it's absorbed there, it maybe ends up in the brain. So there's a lot of different factors that go into it, whether your drug has more fat, whether it is easily digestible, whether it's easily absorbed. And absorption is a problem, especially if we're talking about oral drugs. So if you eat it orally, it has to pass through your intestines and then all the other layers before it could get to where it needs to be versus a drug that's injected, right? If you inject it directly in the veins, then you know 100% it's in the veins, right? right? So all these factors come into play when we think about is the medication going to be helpful is the dose going to be right because if i give you something orally and i tell you hey this is only going to be about like 50 percent absorbed mm -hmm. right so if i'm going to give you the same drug but this time around through an injection i'm going to have to lower that dose a lot if not you can see how it's going to be a problem in the future right it's a huge overdose so that's what we do when it comes to looking at a medicine and making sure it's correct. And it's the same for psychiatric drugs. So the brain has this wonderful protective mechanism called the blood-brain barrier. And it only allows certain substances of a correct size and of a correct fat content to enter. So even though there are different drugs with the same profile and they'll tell you like, okay, same absorption rate, same general excipients, which is your other ingredients, we still need to question like, is the bioavailability basically it, how how likely is it going to end up in the place that you want it to be and so these are all the things that we need to take note of and it's really fun like again involves a lot of googling for the latest papers and the latest findings just to make sure you're getting the right drug it's awesome i'm having a full lecture right now so Fair i'm very happy about that learning a lot so thank <laughs> you you're welcome very quick question yeah. on this and then i'd like to kind of segue into your new uh -huh. role so before we move there just to make it kind of simple for me and the listeners, is a way to think about, you know, different types of drugs. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, you know, they can be different brands or different whatevers, but the compositions can be the yep. same. Is that something, like an analogy for us, would it be like French fries at McDonald's versus French fries at Burger King? Technically same ingredients, but processed differently. Does that work? Yeah, I, I would think that works, right? So any, not just Burger Kings or McDonald's, but just any fried potato in general, Mm -hmm. um, so I would say like McDonald's is your brand name. Any fried potato thereafter would be an alternative um, mm -hmm. or even a generic if it comes from your home as well. Like So the process of making your fry is very different and this is, it's exactly the same for drugs. Which one do you prefer? Do you prefer McDonald's fries or Burger King fries? <laughs> oh, neither. I like Moss, Moss Burger. Oh, okay. I Moss love Moss Burger. Burger. Going to Japan, all right. <laughs> So very enlightening. Uh, I think the mini lecture on, on pharmacy actually is quite, quite fascinating. Thanks for sharing. Now, 
I think I've noticed you, you actually did a pretty decent job, I think, at explaining to us. Is this something that you've picked up, I think, as you move more into education and communicating information to people? I was born this way. <laughs> I, I knew exactly what to say at the right moment. <laughs> no, no. Um, I spent a lot of years practicing this. I remember my first shock came to me when I was around, I think, 17. So young Nix was this fat kid who had very low self-confidence and I would just kind of huddle away and run away from people. And suddenly one day, a senior came up to me, he was 18, and he was just like, hey, you're pretty confident. Could you lecture my entire cohort of future leaders on confidence? And I looked at him and I was just like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? So it did take years of building up, being able to communicate with people, my expectations, what I understood. It definitely did help that throughout university, I was engaged in some sort of community project, right? So you'd meet people from different backgrounds, different, I guess, English competency levels, and for people dealing with me, different Chinese competency levels. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and that really helped, right? It's kind of understanding where your partner is and then meeting them there so that they kind of understand what you're trying to tell them right so it was just kind of years of refining i definitely do say that the the conversations with my aunties and uncles in the public hospitals did help because half the time it was just like huh what do you say <laughs> um and then you just have to repeat yourself um, in a different tone with different words different ways of describing the same thing so i i guess in that sense that's why I feel like a lot of my skills from my past jobs and my past experiences are very much transferable into my new job. So what I do in my new job is I try to, and what I like about it actually, is that it's pretty standard. So in education, we do set a minimum standard and we say like, okay, this is what at basic I need you to understand. And I'm, I'm going to break that further. Like, how do I define this? How do I describe this? How do I make sure that all my teachers around me describe this in the same way possible. So that's something that I really enjoyed because there was a standardization to it. Definitely working in the medical field did help. Working with different people did help as well because then you kind of are able to taper those levels. What I didn't mention was that these lessons are for primary school children, which makes it all the more fun, <laughs> right? No big words, nothing more than like four syllables long, right? And you kind of just need to inform them, like how do you define this? How, how are you able to, first and foremost, give them a simple definition, but at the same time, number two, give them a definition that they can then build upon, right? So how do they then layer on top more complex prob problems, which is something that I didn't have to deal with as much in the pharmacy. So that, that was something that was challenging and really fun for me. So in, in this new role, I think educating children, and I think you, you said you had experience with you know older people and the elderly as well in your uh, pharmacy career. I guess what I think skill sets have you had to build up aside from you know adapting your communication style and you know simplifying the language aside from this what other skill sets have you had to develop and have been helpful uh, in this role especially for someone who didn't come from a kind of a childhood education background i also want to add on top of this question which is is it harder to communicate to kids or is it harder to communicate with adults oh loaded <laughs> so, okay go for it um 
Okay, so maybe let me address Nalin's questions on the, the type of skills. So there is a Chinese saying, I think, that you have two ears and one mouth. Or is it two eyes and one mouth? Either way, you have a pair of each, but only one mouth, right? And so what you're really supposed to do is to listen and to absorb what's around you before you give some sort of feedback, right? And I love that saying because I feel like a lot of times people just want to talk, right? But by talking, you're not learning. You're not processing the information around you. Um, and that's particularly helpful for me. Because what I like to do is I like to sit and I like to listen. I like to observe as well. So I'm using my ears, I'm using my eyes, and I'm looking at you. And I don't know if this is a thing. Maybe it's just by experience. But after some time, you kind of know if a person gets you, right? You look deep into their eyes and there's this like spark. And you're just like, aha, I get it, <laughs> right? So it's a lot of observation work when it comes to both children and adults. If they're furrowing, they're frowning, they may not get it. But after a while, if you see them kind of like that tension releases, they smile a little bit more, you're just like, okay, we, we can talk here. Maybe you don't fully understand, but we can talk. We've got a rapport. And so a lot of observation work that I've been doing helps me in observing my patients, how they feel about the feedback on their medications, about my children when I look at them and see they understand what the heart system is like. It's the same. That same aha, that light in their eyes tells me that they get it. And it tells me that I did a good job. And in the same vein, I feel like being open, having my senses and just keeping an open mind when I walk into work and being very receptive about the feedback I get. You know, like maybe uh, this module needs a bit more improvement. Maybe you should consider this other workflow has been very helpful to my development as a person because I wouldn't be able to do this on my own. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to learn as quickly as I do without my colleagues advising me. And so I'm really grateful for that. Does that, does that answer your question, Nalin? Yeah, I think so. Thank you very much. Okay, cool. All right, so maybe I will move on to um, Francesco's question, right? So let's not be offensive here, but let's yeah, let's keep <laughs> it clean. Okay, um, so adults or children? Tough answer. Tough answer. Um, so I would say you can you can break it down further if you want. Yeah. You know, like younger kids, older kids, adults, elderly. Or, or maybe you know, what's the trait that makes someone become very angry at you or or the other way around you know i mean personally i always find dealing with adults a bit harder and that's because we have a lot that comes with us like a lot of baggage a lot of kind of preconceived notions so for example i would have certain assumptions that i hold very dear to me that form my facade and for you to be able to penetrate that uh, will cause pain it definitely will and that would kind of trigger another layer of defensiveness of blame of despair and dealing with an adult you can't tell them hey you know i'm older than you listen to me respect me no that does not happen that way we are peers here so being able to reach out to a person while navigating all these intricate layers of a being to me is very difficult, right? You don't get the same as much with children because they are still forming that worldview. They're still trying to understand what's important to them. But with children, it's a bit more complex because I feel that, again, this is going to sound a bit weird, but I don't own these kids. They're not mine. 
right? And so when I'm educating them as a teacher, their parents have already cultivated, right? They've already cultivated a sort of language, a sort of responses in these children. And so it's very hard for me to come up and say like, you know what, your parents are wrong. <laughs> that's that's not what we want to do, right? It's not your role then, either, right? Yeah, yeah, it's not my role either. So it's very difficult to come and intervene and say like, hey, you know, there's an alternative. Do you want to think of this? And so like I get really, for me, it's crushing. I don't like it when a child comes to me and he goes like, you know, I, I can't do this. My parents say I'm stupid or I, I can't do this because I'm too young. You wonder where this kid gets all these notions from and it's a very delicate balance in trying to help them understand that there is a different worldview. It's also very difficult to kind of balance that because sometimes they challenge you and they say, yeah, but my parents say so, so it must be true. And then you kind of just have to navigate smoothly along and offer them a different perspective. So it's a different challenge between the elderly and the young, but it's always, always, always about observing them, trying to meet them where they are, trying to understand that they are from different backgrounds, they will experience things differently, they will hear different things from you. And so how can you be more sensitive to address your needs, but at the same time, lead them to the same destination? Right. I can also understand how that it's fully reusable for the role you're in as a project manager. I mean, that's pretty big help <laughs> to keep everybody together and working together, right? Like you said, different backgrounds, different cultures, different different way of of living and and working so i would say that that experience must be quite impactful in your day-to-day job and let me go back one second to your day-to-day job can you tell us what happens when you walk into your office in in the morning and what is your usual day like what do you what do you do how much of communication is there how much staring at excel spreadsheet is there and so on wow um I wish there was more Excel sheet spreading. Oh, well. I, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'd appreciate that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> simply because Excel sheets can talk back to me and I can manipulate the way I want them to, but you can't do that with humans. So a day-to-day, what it looks like, I get up at maybe around 7. I get into office if the office is open, but I'm usually at work by 9. And I will be making a checklist in my head, the people I need to speak to, the task I need to complete, who do I need help from? And these are the things that are kind of like running in the background of my mind at all times, just to make sure that it's smooth, right? Then I will send out my urgent emails to people that I need answers from immediately uh, before lunch. And then I have some time to breathe and do whatever it is I need to do. So whether that's Excel sheet molding or writing a new module or just kind of looking through documents. I work in a startup, so I basically do everything. I am your legal team, your BD team, your marketing team. I'm everything in one person. So I find the time to do that. Thereafter, I will respond to the queries that come back or respond to any individuals who need my help or seek help where I need it. And that's usually around like three. So then the last two hours is just continue doing whatever admin I was doing, attending any meetings that I'm supposed to be at and sort of closing the day. So the thing about startups that is really tough and working from home is that there is no stop time. 
there is no stop time yeah. and that's so hard for me to navigate because it's always about being more productive doing more achieving what you can because like you know if this is your last day on earth are you sure you just want to stop at one excel sheet i'm sure you can do two <laughs> um so that's that's why i do i challenge myself a lot so these days for me it's about self-preservation and i try my best to stop work at seven and leave it to the next day to roll over. But again, depends on how urgent timelines are. Maybe if I were to put it in perspective, I think I'd say I'm speaking to someone at least 60 to 70% of the time. And then the remainder is trying to hear my own voice and write my own things, which can be pretty disruptive if people just keep coming in and out of my oh, day. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. That's always the worst, right? When you just have people constantly talking to you on Teams or whatever other you know, <sighs> chatting software you use. It's not great. Very disruptive, as you said. It reminds me of, of when I was taking my uh, VHF radio course for Maritime. People were, were saying that, you know, on, on Teams, you, you keep getting disturbed and people keep, like, talking over you. When you're on an old-school Maritime radio, it's push to talk. So when you're talking, no one else can talk. And everyone else has to wait for you to finish your message. <laughs> the good old times. So one of our my, my co-students were like, I, I wish Teams had this, you know? <laughs> I don't think that's going to work out, but... That's, and do you know what I really miss? I miss MSN Nudge. You MSN know, your Nudge. Whole screen. Yeah, your whole screen just shakes and you're just like, wake up! Oh, from MSN, I definitely miss the fact that you could substitute every single letter with a special character to the point where you couldn't understand anything anymore or what people would tell you. You may, you may need to, to explain MSN to probably the majority of our Gen Z oh, no. and below listeners. Yeah, I think, I think our target audience is still familiar with it maybe we're off by a couple of years but the majority i would expect to i would expect them to know what msn is actually it reminded me my favorite letter that i used to have in msn was the letter v every time i used to type v there would be a loading bar with a virus downloading it, it was kind of a joke that you would send it to your friend type v and the friend would see this loading bar being like virus downloading and they would freak out but then it became my standardized v letter so yeah, it became very problematic to just have a normal conversation with, with anybody. <laughs> and that's why MSN is dead now. <laughs> oh, in the US they don't use MSN. Okay. We didn't really use it that much. I think more, more people there were using uh, like AOL, AIM, AOL Instant Messenger. Mm. That's probably the closest equivalent. But uh, I don't think there is a contemporary equivalent. I mean, you, you get, you know, you can just text people quite easily, Telegram, WhatsApp, and then probably Discord would be the, the closest like social messaging, group messaging platform, maybe. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's been quite a equivalent to it any, like since then, yeah. All right, back to serious topics or semi-serious. Yeah. I have a question, Nick. So my sister is also a pharmacist, I told you yeah. earlier, uh, slash toxicologist. And she told me that she's, well, she was working at, in a pharmacy at the beginning of her uh, of her career uh, right now she's working in a more of a regulatory role mm -hmm. but she was telling me some stories of people that just walks into you know a, a pharmacy slash hospitals pharmacy and so on so i was just wondering whether you had any special encounter with with some interesting person i would say with some interesting people while you were working inside the hospital and I mean, without naming names or whatever. Yeah, if you if you can <laughs> tell us if you meet anybody if you met anybody like that, if you have a fun story for us, basically. 
Oh, for sure. Always, always a fun story in the pharmacy. There you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I actually, that's, that's the part about pharmacy I miss the most as in clinical practice, right? Because you never know what to expect. It's really one of those like life is a box of chocolates. You're going to get screwed over. You're going to get a weird, funky favor you're not going to like. But then you're going to have Panadol to fix that up. So. Oh, yeah, you're going to have like a great <laughs> bunch of colleagues. You're going to have medical knowledge to back you up and like doctors and nurses on your side. And that was always fun. So I personally like, call this community pharmacy. And what it means is they're the persons that you go to when you have a cough and cold or where you really just need something simple like a Panadol. Like you've got a very simple issue and you, you don't need a doctor, but you do need some help. Um, and so you go to your pharmacist, your community pharmacist. So there was this uncle that came to me one day and he was just like, uh, girl, ah, girl, my nose is bleeding. And I was just like, you know, concerned, right? Like as a healthcare professional, oh dear, how long has your nose been bleeding? Like which side has it been bleeding from? Um, like once in a week, how often does it bleed? Do you have any medical conditions? What's like what's up tell me more and he goes like oh yeah it bleeds like every day it bleeds when i pick it and i can't seem to stop it and i look at him and i go dude stop it dude just stop picking your nose and he's like no it feels so good like do you have any medications for me and i'm like i'm like no i, I do not i can cut I do your not fingers have off I have nothing for you, right? Um, so I get also also really eccentric people. I do get people who bargain for more drugs. Oh, in which way? So they tell me like, oh, the last time round, this person gave me like twenty packets when we can only give ten, and so it'll be like, can you, you know, you're so pretty, you're so smart. I'm sure you can give me like another five more. How does that help? I, I mean, so every time they come down, they can only buy like a fixed amount from us because we're not doctors so we can't prescribe right. so we do have a limit um and so they're always like you know try and push it and like oh can you like push the limit for me can you key in under someone like my friend's name instead of mine and so i can get double the amount and so you get really smart people coming to you it's always a challenge it's always a challenge to say no and even just cultural differences or kind of misunderstanding right because i do have a kiosk and they come to my kiosk and they're just like oh here here's my stuff for payment and i'm just like um Sorry, can't do that. No point of sales contact here and they just flare up at me. Or people who expect me to then carry their baskets and follow them around the store, which I do not do. So there's just a lot of differences, I think, in expectations and management and being able to navigate that I thought was really fun. Awesome. We have a few more minutes for a few more questions. <laughs> and then we can go through the recap. Refocus back on the current job, I think. So I think you know, you've talked about the startup kind of nature, doing a little bit of everything. And I guess talked about the education aspect, working with children and everything. So I think maybe a, a question I think would be, you know, when you went into school for pharmaceutical studies, is this what you pictured yourself doing? Or is this something that, uh, basically what I'm trying to get at is, is this something that was coming for a while? Or was there kind of a, a trigger of some sort that made you want to switch? Ha. Huh. Um, I feel like my entire process of getting where I am today, and even as I'm standing here um, doing pretty cool things, I think at least, it's still not where I imagined myself to be. And I can hardly think of where I'll be in the next five or ten years, right? Because my interest shifts 
the workplace, the dynamics of the industry shift as well. Um, so it's always going to be this constant navigation. But I do know that when I started pharmacy school, and again, the idea being that, you know, if you're a pharmacist, you're likely a medical school dropout, right? I did think a lot about like, trying for medicine. I didn't prior because mm -hmm. I was just like, you know, it's too much hassle. I'm scared of blood. No, right? Um, I'm scared of blood. I am so scared of blood. I hate um, it. Yeah. And this is the best part of the pharmacist because like as a nurse, as a doctor, you do have to look at blood, but as a pharmacist, you just look at drugs and you're just like, ha-ha. Yeah, so you don't have to do all the, the dirty work. You just kind of sit and prescribe things like a consultant right. almost. Um, it's great. Uh, so if anyone wants to become a pharmacist, no blood, no injections, not yet, but good stuff. Just good times. Just good times and a lot of memory work, but pretty much good times. I think I, I was very lost, right? Um, I feel like a lot, um, again, this is historical in nature, like parental generational trauma, right? But the pharmacy school in Singapore was made to produce pharmacists for the clinical world. And so we'd be the people who were checking the doctors, checking the drugs, checking the supply chain. Um, that's what we were initially trained to do. And I was the last of the old syllabus, which meant that I couldn't do time off. I couldn't, I couldn't take a gap year from my studies to explore startups. I just had to do it at the same time because if I came back the next year my cohort is gone the syllabus is gone I pretty much have to kind of restart which wasn't ideal for the school so a lot of it was kind of centered around medical practice which at that time I felt was not for me and so a lot of my career studying career if you can call it um, a lot of the time I spent in school was spent doing projects so I do a lot of things so I joined a startup during one semester for a whole year I joined the community pharmacists, the ones who were serving the people and the public. I joined the industry. So I did marketing and sales for a pharma company. I joined the Ministry of Health in Singapore and I was just trying to find my place because I didn't quite understand, nor did my school provide me any information about where I might fit. Um, and I always felt a little bit off. I felt like I was doing too many things. I felt like I was not meticulous enough. Like, you know, when I joined the hospitals, it's the end. No more. You're not going to be great at this. You're, in fact, going to suck because you can't memorize. Um, I really wasn't a good student. And so I was very concerned. I was very concerned. And I felt that the practice ship, doing the apprenticeship was helpful. I felt like the formative years inside the hospital was very helpful for me because it helped to help me understand that there are skills that I'm good at that weren't previously emphasized. Like with all the projects that I was doing in university, I became very good at talking to people. I became very good at managing timelines. I became really good at, again, communication and being very confident in what I was doing, uh, which were skills that were not necessarily expressed in my job at the counter. And that is why I had to take a step out. So taking a step out and going into project management has really shown me that up until this point, I've been cultivating a set of skills I never knew was needed. I never expected to be in this role. I never expected that whatever I would learn in school, whatever I would learn in the hospital might be transferable. So these days I'm taking a very different approach when it comes to learning new skills, learning new technical subjects, because I do know that whatever I currently absorb, whether it's medical knowledge, whether it's education and andragogical knowledge, it can be repackaged and repurposed for a new use. So it's all about how I 
look at the subject and how am I going to reinterpret it? How do I repackage it to make it useful for my next role? Um, so no, I don't think I would have ended up here. I am honestly very surprised and continue to be. Um, <laughs> and that's why I keep my doors open and see where the wind may blow. When you said that you were the last one in your, I guess, course, in the pharmacy course, did you mean to say that now the course has changed in a way where they allow you to do some a year, a gap year where you can do some apprenticeship? Or uh, what did you mean exactly early when you said, I didn't have the choice of, of taking a year off or... Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, you are spot on. So um, how do I phrase this? Okay, so with curriculum building, um, especially on a large scale like a university, what happens is like the professors need to think about, okay, here are the outcomes. Like by the end of four years, this is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with all these outcomes, you're going to break it down. So they're going to tell you like, okay, first semester, you're going to learn this. Second semester, you're going to learn this and then so on and so forth. This tends to be the case for a very um, content heavy courses. So things like medical school, pharmacy school tend to have a very set curriculum. Right. So they don't change this. Or at least in my university, that tends to be the case. If you are a liberal arts student, then you know do do what you want, take whatever you want to take, right? But for me, it was very fixed. And if you deviated from this, then you'd have to wait for the next round because my department did not have the resources to run the same course twice in a year. Oh, okay. So you, I see. You, you, yeah, you'd have to do this with your cohort mates. And so, being the last of this curriculum batch, mm-hmm. my juniors were of a different subset, right? Um, I could only take the modules when my peers were doing it. If I waited a year, mm-hmm. they'd have to kind of revamp the whole thing for me, massage it such that I can go into the next um, cohort, which is doing entirely different things. So, that was a problem. Um, and for that reason, they didn't allow me to um, go for my internships. I did get nominated to be plonked aboard. So if you go abroad, you can be like in Silicon Valley for a year doing whatever you want and then coming back to continue your education. But for me, that wasn't a choice. So even though I got the offer, I had to kindly reject it and find something else to do with my time. All right. I think it's time for us to wrap it up. Thank you very much, Nix, for being on. We're just going to go through a small recap and then you're free to go and have fun. Quick, quick, quick recap. Yeah, I think, I think this was an insightful session and thank you very much for sharing uh, your stories from your pharmacy world and your current role in education. Uh, I think we learned a lot. We learned that uh, the same drug can be made in many different ways and absorbed by the body quite differently. I think we learned the importance of communication and uh, adapting your communication style, depending on who you're speaking to, especially when dealing with uh, children and the elderly. Um, I think the other key takeaway I think we got was drugs make you happy. And if you don't like blood and you want to go into medicine, become a pharmacist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty good advice. I will want to add on though, that I feel like pharmacy as a career offers you many opportunities. I didn't mention this in detail earlier, but since we are part of the supply chain, 
Um, there is a lot of operational and logistics role that you can explore. It's not my forte, but I do have friends who are working in that. And Francesco's sister in regulatory would probably know better than I do. So it is a, I would say, a blue ocean. It's up to you to go explore what you want to do. I do think that this is the same across all industries and all knowledge domains. You are free to do what you want to do with your knowledge. Just being adaptable and learning to communicate with those around you is probably the best thing, the best skill you could have. Yeah, I think that's my my main takeaway for this session. Really, that you managed to take all the skills that you had, you know, accumulated through university and, and through your first years of the career, and just managed to translate those very well into into your current role as a project manager. So, everything you learn is useful. That's that's kind of the key here. Thanks for listening to Work It. For more information on behind-the-scenes images, take a look at our website, workit.stream. This podcast was created by Francesco Azola and Karina Arianto. Hosted by Francesco Azola and Nala Natrajan. Recorded in sunny Singapore. Music by Justin Arianto. Thanks to Nix for joining us today. We'll see you next time with another reason why every role kills it. The jobs you thought you knew and the people who do them.